Uh, and we've called the series On the Road with Jesus. Uh, and we're going to be continuing that today from Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through to 56. So if you have got a Bible, I'd really encourage you to get it out and open it up. Uh, if you're at home and you've got a Bible but not like right next to you, then maybe dash and grab that uh, so that you can read along as we go through the passage. Rather than reading it all out in one go, we're going to kind of read a bit and pause and unpack it as we work through. Now, you need to know up front today that there are a lot of verses. 22 to 56, there's a lot of content in those verses. Uh, and we're looking today at four incredible miracles that Jesus performed when he walked this earth. Uh, and the reason that we're taking these four miracles together is that Luke's put them together in his account of the life of Jesus for a reason. And we could easily spend a whole week or more uh, on each one of these four miracles. There's so much there. When you read them, there's so much detail, so much depth, that we could easily spend a decent chunk of time on each. But we're going to kind of skim through them today and take the four together. And I want you to think of it like this, uh, as a bit like a photo mosaic picture, if you've ever seen one of those. And I've got an example of one here. You can quite clearly see that this is a picture of our queen. But the picture of the queen is made up of lots of smaller pictures. And if you were able to get up close, each of those pictures of different people has an amazing amount of detail to it. And, and you could study each picture. You'd see the features on each individual person's face, uh, what they were doing, how they held themselves. But when you combine them and then you take a step back, they paint this bigger overall picture of the queen. It's very clever. I, I quite like these photo mosaics. I think they're really cool. Um, but I want you to think of these four miracles that we're going to look at today as a bit like a photo mosaic picture in the Bible where, where each one has much kind of detail and lots that we could look at in its own right. But we're going to take the step back and see the overall picture that these miracles paint for us as we look at them today. Is that okay? Clear? Good. So in each of these four, I'm going to tell you the things that unite them before we go through so that you know where we're going, and then we'll, we'll double back on it later. So before we get into it, you need to know that in each of these four miracles, we will see clearly Jesus' authority. In each of these situations, in each of these miracles, we'll see that there are people who are in an utterly hopeless and helpless situation. And in each of these four situations, we'll see that as Jesus displays his authority, people respond to that in two very contrasting ways. Uh, and so without any further introduction, we're going to go for it. So we're in Luke chapter 8. Hopefully you've got your Bibles by now. If you don't have one, the words will come up on the screen. But it's always better if you can open your own as we go. So we're in eight, chapter 8, 
verse 22 onwards, we read this. One day he, that's Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Pause. First miracle is about to happen. We set the scene. What's going on? Under Jesus' direction, Jesus and his disciples, you've got to know, it's Jesus' idea that they crossed the lake. Uh, it was him that led them into this. Jesus gives them the instructions. They're on a boat sailing across the Sea of Galilee, and a storm blows up. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a huge lake. It's actually well known for these kind of sudden stormy conditions. The, the geography, the landscape around it, uh, the way the wind blows through whips up huge, huge waves on this lake. We need to remember that these disciples who are with Jesus, several of them were experienced fishermen. Experienced fishermen on this very lake, the Sea of Galilee, they knew the dangers of this water. They knew what it was like to be in a storm. They knew their craft well. They knew their area. And so when they say, we are perishing to Jesus, when they wake him up and say, we're going to die, they know what they're talking about, okay? It's not like me getting out on a fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee and freaking out because it's a bit choppy. These guys knew what they were talking about. They were in a hopeless situation. They weren't being overly dramatic. They knew that unless Jesus did something, this was the end. This was the end. This is a serious storm, and they were terrified of it. With all their years' experience, with all their training, with all their expertise, with all their best efforts, there was nothing that they could do about their situation. And so they cried out to Jesus, wake up, please. And what did he do? Well, we read on, and he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. Now, I think lots of us have probably heard this story lots of times, maybe growing up at Sunday school, or you've heard it in church, and, and we kind of gloss over that bit, and we're like, yeah, yeah, no, I know, yeah, like Jesus calmed the storm, like he, yeah, like, I know this bit. Like, like please don't just be over-familiar with what happened there. Okay, Jesus spoke and the wind and the waves listened and obeyed. That's staggering. That's absolutely staggering, isn't it? The wind and the waves knew Jesus' voice and they listened to him and they obeyed. I don't know about you, but I've never spoken to the weather and it done what I've told it to. I mean, you? I don't like, <laughs> I, like I wish, right? How many times I've planned 
barbecues or a walk and, and it's rained off, and I think if I could just say, rain, stop. But I, I don't have that kind of authority, and neither do you. It's amazing, isn't it? But what happens next is, is almost equally as amazing. We read on from verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that commands even the winds and water and they obey him? See, the disciples were, were needlessly scared of the storm before. They were absolutely freaking out. And you would have been too. <laughs> Jesus rebukes them for their fear. He says, where, where is your faith? He, he had brought them out onto the lake and he would bring them through the storm. No doubt it was scary and it was beyond their control, but they should never have questioned that Jesus would bring them through it. And now they're scared of something else, having been scared of the storm. Did you notice that? They were afraid, this time, actually of Jesus, of, of who they were with on the boat. And they asked, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, actually, they knew the answer to that question. <laughs> okay, they, they, they weren't kind of asking it genuinely puzzled, like, oh, like, I don't know. I, like, I, I, thought, I thought he was you know, Joseph's son, maybe he's someone else. Like, who is this? I don't know. But like, they knew the answer to the question. They, these guys actually knew their Hebrew scriptures. They knew that God is the one who speaks and nature listens. They knew that, that in Genesis, at the beginning, God speaks. We read, don't we, in Genesis 1 and 2, God says, let there be. <laughs> And it happens that he speaks creation into being. That They would have known the Psalms. We read Psalm 33 uh, as an example from 6 to 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap and puts the deeps in storehouses. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. They knew the answer to this question. They were in the boat with God. They knew that they were in the presence of God incarnate, God in human flesh, and they were afraid. But wisely, they stuck with him. In fact, they marveled at his authority in other words, they, they responded, although they were scared. It's like a holy reverence. They responded in worship. And they continued to follow him. Next up, this is what happens. They come through the storm that Jesus stills. They arrive on the other side of the lake to the country of the Gerasenes. And they're immediately greeted by a man who was in deep trouble and distress. This man was possessed by demons. And we, we read in the passage that actually he was naked, that he had no home. 
that he lived out amongst the tombs and that he was so vicious and powerful that although people had attempted to chain him up, attempted to bind him for his own safety and for the safety of others, that he had broken his chains, that he could not be bound. This man was feared by those who he might attack and cause harm to, much like the storm was feared by the disciples who feared for their lives. And I would guess too that this man himself was very much afraid of what he might do next. He was in deep, deep distress. And the storm that was raging on the lake may have been calmed by Jesus, but the emotional and mental and spiritual tempest that was raging inside of this man possessed by evil spirits is like no other. And no one knows what can be done for this man. People have tried. They've tried to help him. They've tried to bind him for his safety and the safety of others. They've, they've done all they can. It's a hopeless situation. It's like the disciples didn't know what to do on the boat. And we read this happens as they arrive from verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. This man or the, the demons within him recognize immediately Jesus' authority. And he falls down. It's, a, it's an act of submission to the authority of Jesus. And the Spirit speaking through the man we read on from verse 30 declare who Jesus is, don't they? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. They know exactly who they're dealing with. The disciples knew when they questioned, who's this that even the wind and the waves obey? Again, the demons now actually speak it out. We know exactly who you are, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. We read from verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him, that's they begged Jesus, not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And Jesus asks him, what's your name? This response, Legion, this isn't a small problem. We, we kind of aren't very good with those kind of terms necessarily. Uh, but to Luke's original readers, they, they would have known what was meant by a legion uh, under Roman occupation. They were talking about 6,000 foot soldiers, roughly, uh, about 120 horsemen uh, and others. It's not saying the guy has 6,000 demons and 120 horsey demons or something. That's, that's not the point. The, the, but, but the image that this is supposed to conjure is that this is a big, big problem. There is a huge amount of evil power at work in this man's life. 
Just like the storm was bigger than anything the disciples had come across. This was a bigger challenge than any of them had faced spiritually. But we've got to notice this. These demons, many as there were, feared though this man was, they knew exactly who was in control in that situation. They knew exactly where the real authority rested. Notice, it says they, they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. See, they knew their fate. They know that Jesus could and will one day condemn them to the pit of hell forever, that they will be bound forever. And they, they plead with Jesus in this moment, like, don't, don't do that to us now. It's interesting, isn't it? They knew that Jesus had authority. In fact, everything about this interaction shows how absolute Jesus' authority is. See, the power of these demons to torment this man is real, but the power of Jesus to bring freedom is so much greater. It's, it's utterly beyond doubt. I mean, they, they had to ask Jesus' permission to act. They have, had no authority to do anything without Jesus allowing it. It's amazing, isn't it? And just as Jesus had stilled the storm, Jesus now brought peace to this man's troubled soul. Now, I said at the start, each of these miracles we could spend a long time on. There's a whole load of stuff about pigs and running down hillsides into lakes that we just don't have time to get into. And actually, to be honest, to focus on that too much is to really miss the point of this miracle. Because this is primarily about Jesus' authority. Although the pigs are going to come into it in a minute because they have an impact on how some people respond to Jesus' authority. So what happens? Verse 35, how do the people respond to what Jesus has just done. We, we read, the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus. Like, remember, this is a guy who was absolutely out of his mind, possessed, would, tormented, would, would beat people, was too wild to even be chained. And now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, peaceful, says clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The people who saw this were afraid. It's interesting, isn't it? And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, that's Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. Just think about that reaction for a minute. This crazy naked man who beat up anyone who came near him and could not be bound for his safety or the safety of those who might come near is now clothed and sane and sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus, 
worshipping Jesus. And the people that come, instead of also worshipping Jesus and going, wow, like, how did you do that to this guy? Like, we've tried everything. Instead of doing that, they do something quite different. They're scared. A bit like the disciples in the boat after the calming of the storm. They're afraid because they realize whose presence they're in. But unlike the disciples who stick with Jesus, who trust him, these people actually do the opposite. They won't accept him. They ask him to leave them. Why is that? Why is that? Well, you see, they're scared about what the implications might be for them if he sticks around. And they fail to see how what Jesus has come to offer them is better than what they already have. See, the Gerasenes rejected Jesus because they feared what the implications might be for them and for their wealth and for their lifestyle. 2,000 pigs, and this is where we're going to briefly get onto the pigs, were worth an awful lot of money. That's not a small herd of pigs. They were worth a lot of money. They don't want to lose any more or anything else like that. They don't want to risk that happening. They don't want to risk their comfort being shaken. They don't want to risk what might, else might happen. They were more interested in their immediate material security than they were in eternal salvation. They didn't doubt that Jesus had power and authority. <laughs> they, they, they would be crazy to doubt that. But they thought they knew better than he did about what their best interests were. They didn't doubt his power and authority, but they didn't trust that he had their best interests at heart. And so instead of coming to him for freedom and forgiveness, they reject him. Interesting, isn't it? We're going to come back to that later. But the man whom Jesus had set free, well, he responded very differently. He was ready to leave everything, to follow Jesus, to be with him. He, he didn't care what the cost might be in the future. He was going to go. We read this from verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. See, they said to Jesus, go away. We're scared of what the implications might be of having you around. <laughs> we don't want life to change. We, we want things to stay as they are. But this man, who'd found freedom in Jesus, begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away. That sounds harsh, but it's not, okay? Saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming through the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The people thought about what they might lose and they rejected Jesus, but the man realized what he would gain by being with Jesus and, and wanted to be with him. And what did Jesus do? He, Jesus knew that he would be with him for all eternity. But physically with him right there and then, Jesus said, I, I, I've got work 
for you to do. And so he commissioned him to go and to tell everyone that he could about the freedom that he'd found, about the forgiveness that could be found in the one who has authority over creation, the one who has authority even over all spirits. So in these first two miracles, as we skip through, you see Jesus has demonstrated authority over nature and over demons. Yeah? But we're not done yet. We've got two more miracles where Jesus shows his authority over disease and death. So Jesus returns as we read on to his hometown of Capernaum. And he's mobbed as he arrives by a crowd who are eager to see what he might do next. Jesus has spent quite a lot of time in Capernaum at this point in his ministry. It's, we shared a few weeks ago, it's kind of become his ministry base from which he keeps going out to other places and coming back to. Uh, and so he's, he's well known there. He has a great reputation. And so as he and his disciples arrive back across the lake on the boat and they get off, he's greeted by a huge crowd who are very eager to see what he might do next. They're desperate not to miss out on what he might say or do. And a man called Jairus, who's a leader in the synagogue, he's a prominent figure in the Jewish community, comes to Jesus. And in the same way as the man in the Gerasenes had done, he fell down at Jesus' feet. And we read this. He implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Jairus was most likely not particularly a fan of Jesus, okay? He was a leader in the synagogue, and and broadly, they were quite hostile towards Jesus. We read, didn't we, a few weeks ago about uh, one of the synagogue leaders who had invited Jesus in for a meal, and the the disrespect and the dishonor that he showed to Jesus. Jairus was probably not a big fan of Jesus, but he was desperate. His daughter was dying. It's like every parent's worst nightmare scenario. As a father, I can't imagine the pain which Jairus must have been experiencing at that point in time, the the sheer desperation. It's like, we've, we've tried everything. She's dying. What are we going to do? And so in his desperation, he comes to Jesus. There was nothing anyone else could do for her. And maybe he'd um, seen some of the miracles Jesus had performed around Capernaum. He certainly would have heard stories. And so he thought, okay, maybe, maybe he can do something. And we read, Effectively, Jesus has compassion on him, and Jesus went with him. That's the next thing we read. As Jesus went, (laughs) as Jesus responds to Jairus' request, he goes with him. The people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Enter our next character For 12 years, this woman had suffered 
from a medical condition that caused her to bleed. And no one could do anything about her condition. It's a tragic picture, isn't it? She spent all her living on physicians and no one could do anything about her condition. And culturally, what's worse even than the physical experience of living with an illness that no one can cure would have been the social and emotional impact of being pushed to the margins of society. See, because of this bleeding, she would have been considered unclean. And anyone who touched her would have become unclean. And so for 12 years, this woman had been, by society, pushed to the margins, considered unclean, not welcomed in people's homes, not embraced because she would have made them unclean. And so her situation was one of isolation and shame pain. Her situation was hopeless and desperate. And we read on from verse 44, she came up behind him, that's Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. It's amazing, isn't it, right? For 12 years, all that she had gone through, and she simply believes that Jesus can heal her, She touches his cloak and immediately, after 12 years, the bleeding stops. And in the press of the crowds, Jesus says this. Who was it that touched me? (laughs) I think it's almost kind of comedic to ask that question. We've already had that picture painted for us. He's been mobbed by crowds as he got off the boat and and now they're pressing in on every side as he tries to get through to Jairus' house to heal his daughter and they've come to a standstill and Jesus is like, who touched me? Like, everyone. And and when all denied it, you think, like, (laughs) anyway, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. It's interesting, isn't it? An experience of Jesus' authority and power. And yet again, for the third time, there's fear too. This woman comes trembling and falling down before him in the presence of all the people. She declared why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And how does Jesus respond? He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is an amazing scene, isn't it? Again, Jesus' power and authority is on display. He has authority over storms. He has authority over spiritual oppression. And now he demonstrates he has authority over sickness. And just like the disciples and the Gerasenes, this woman is fearful. 
She's seen his power displayed. But what will the implications be for her now? This bleeding has stopped. She, she must have been overjoyed. But at the same time, there's a measure of fear as she steps forward. But she knows she can't hide. You notice that in the passage as the woman saw that she was not hidden. She, she knew that, that Jesus saw her, that there was no hiding from him. And so she steps forward. It's impossible to overstate how difficult that would have been for her. Remember what we just talked about. Twelve years of social isolation, being ostracized, rejected, unclean, unwanted, pushed to the margins, full of shame. And this woman, knowing all of that, carrying all of that, baggage, all of that emotional weight in fear and trembling steps forward and brings out all her shame and brokenness and confesses. She doesn't hide anything. It says she declared in the presence of all these people why she touched Jesus. She admitted all, all that had been going on. And how does Jesus respond? He calls her daughter. He speaks to her with compassion, this loving and tender response. That, that with him there is no need to fear rejection. See, I don't know what shame you might be carrying today. I don't know what you might like that woman would have been fearful to admit, you might be fearful to put your hand up to and say, yeah, I've been doing that. I've, I've lived in that way. I've pursued those things. I've continued to sin in that way. And you think, if, if people knew, how might they judge me? And this woman, as she brought it all out into the light and came to Jesus, how does he respond? daughter. He speaks full of compassion and tenderness. There's no need to fear rejection when you come to him. He's for her and he is for you. Are you starting to see the picture built and come into focus? These three kind of pictures that sit together to give us a bigger one. Is it starting to come clear what's going on? Let's get back into the story. It's easy to forget, having read what we've just read, but Jesus was about to go to Jairus' house. I don't know if you've forgotten about Jairus yet, but Jesus was on his way there, and Jairus' daughter was dying. Let's not forget Jairus in this moment. As this woman comes and all of this commotion unfolds, what must have been going on for him right there and then? Like... Come on, hurry up. Like, she's healed, she touched you, it's fine, like, let's move on. Like, did you have to speak to her? My daughter's dying. Did we have to stop? And then the worst happens. 
a situation that already felt utterly beyond Jairus' ability to cope with. Utterly hopeless gets worse. Perhaps when Jairus had just begun to dare to hope that Jesus might be able to heal his daughter. He's, he's just seen Jesus heal this woman and thinks, come on, let's get there in a hurry. Maybe if you did it for her, maybe you can do it for my daughter. Things get a lot worse. We read from verse 49, while he was still speaking, that's Jesus to the woman, someone from the rulers, that's Jairus' house, came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Imagine how that must have felt for Jairus in that moment. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And presumably, Jairus did believe. And that's some faith, isn't it? Presumably, Jairus did believe because they carried on towards the house. And when they arrive to the grieving crowds outside, it was clear that those who had gathered there did not share Jairus' faith in Jesus. We read this from verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James. He just took a couple of his disciples in with him and the father and the mother of the child. And all as the people who were gathered in the household were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. They laughed at Jesus. He said it. Just, just complete disbelief. Like, you're a crazy man. Like, we know a dead body when we see one. She's dead. This is so impossible that it's ridiculous to even suggest something could be done for this girl. But, we read from verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. See, Jesus now shows his authority over death itself. This is amazing. And the family respond in worship. Do you see the picture that's been painted with these four accounts? As we step back and look, see, whatever your situation Whatever might be afflicting you, whatever might be holding you captive, whatever fear may be gripping you, it doesn't matter what it is, how big it is, what the nature of it is, whatever you are going through, Jesus has authority to deal with it. Amazing, isn't it? And ultimately, Jesus has authority to deal with death itself, the ultimate enemy. It's what we celebrated last week, 
the resurrection of Jesus. He came to bring you true and lasting freedom. But how you respond is vital. That's the other part of the picture that these four accounts paint, is it not? As we see different people respond to Jesus in different ways, either in fear and rejection or or awe and reverence and worship. If we encounter someone who is incredibly powerful and is against us and seeks our harm, that is a terrifying thing, isn't it? It is. Okay? You look at history and totalitarian regimes or people who have abused positions of power and authority over others. It's horrid. It's scary. Equally, if we meet someone who's in authority and power, even though they might be good, if we believe that we know better than them what's best for ourselves, then how will we respond to them? In our pride, we reject them, don't we? Maybe you've experienced that with someone in your life. I would guess every parent in the room experiences it with their children who disobey them at times because they believe they know better and the parent in a desire to love their child (laughs) does know better very often. Children don't always see it that way and all of us would recognize that if we're honest in our own lives, in our engagement with our parents, in our engagement with others and sadly in our response to God. But if there is someone with authority, someone with real power, who sincerely knows what's best for us and who wholeheartedly desires what's best for us, then we would be foolish not to surrender to them, wouldn't we? We would. If, if you're doubting that, the answer is we would. We would be foolish. And that is exactly the case with our Lord Jesus. And that's exactly the point that's made by these miracles we look at today. He is the King of kings. And true hope, fullness of joy, real life and life in all its fullness are found in submitting to him, surrendering to him. Acknowledging that his ways are better than our our ways. That his wisdom is higher than our wisdom. And that in his authority and in his power and in his absolute knowledge, he knows better than us and we can trust him. His ways are better than ours. This is where we want to respond to this today because sadly too many people And maybe even some of us, maybe all of us at times, end up rejecting Jesus like the Gerasenes did because of what they think they stand to lose, what we think we stand to lose by following him. Because we think we know better about what we want or what we need or what will do us good than he does. I want to encourage you today. I guess actually maybe even stronger, I want to plead with you today. Don't let that 
be you. Whatever you might lose, and you will lose some things by following Jesus, but whatever you might lose by following him is utterly worthless compared to the surpassing joy of knowing him and being known by him. As we looked in these miracles, he can deliver you from anything if you will come to him. Not not just from the shame of your past, but from present sins too. He can not only save your soul, but empower you to live life to the full as you were created to do. Unless you do what the Gerasenes did, where they sent him away. See, if you reject him and tell him to leave you alone, do you know what? He will. It's one of the most sobering bits of these accounts that we read today. The Gerasenes rejected Jesus, and what did he do? That scary, it's kind of a chilling moment in the passage. We read that they asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with fear. And so he got into the boat and returned. He sailed away from them. He sailed away from them, leaving them in their material comfort, but in their spiritual desolation. So I want to ask you to consider a couple of things as we finish today. Firstly, what hopeless situation are you facing? What's going on in your life right now that you just don't know what you're going to do with that? And as you consider that, remember that Jesus has authority. I guess I want to ask you today to consider where do you need to remember that Jesus has authority? And I want to ask you this too. What are you afraid of letting go of? What are you afraid that you might lose by following him? Maybe you you know very clearly for yourself kind of where the rubber hits the road. Because you've you've read the Bible. (laughs) And maybe you know what it says about some things that you're quite attached to. And God, through his word, says that's not for your best. That's not for your good. Don't keep doing that. That's not the way I designed you to be. But you're holding on to it. Because you don't really believe that he knows what's best for you. You don't really trust that he's good. And that his ways are better than yours. I want to encourage you today. See him in his authority. See him in his power. And know him in his goodness. He won't reject you if you come to him. As he didn't reject the woman. Instead, he will restore you. Give you hope. And a future.